to church. I hope that your holidays were really lovely. They were filled with good things. While they also, you probably also experienced some, we'll call them dips. Okay, I had a little dip of my own. I'm like, oh, seriously, I have to be sick? It wasn't COVID. Don't worry, no one in our house felt like they were going to die. We all made it through. So that was good, right, Jason? <laughs> I have announcements, though, as we are just kind of heading into the new year and launching into stuff in a couple of weeks. So not this Tuesday, but the next. We are back at Cedar Way again, and we'll be making our Vision House delivery. And I just wanted to thank you guys for all that you did in December to support those two ministries. Um, we got the word from Shane as he dropped off at Vision House that his, the back of his pickup truck was full and then part of his cab was full as well. And the employees there and the support staff there were just like drop, jaws dropped on the floor as they watched cart after cart come in of things for their residents to be blessed by over this holiday season. So huge, huge thank you. Our gift drive, car, gift drive card, you know, do with that what you want to. Gift card drive is still running um, until next Sunday. And then we will make the delivery of those gift cards as well. Um, and those go to help with stuff for the Nourishing Network and also Vision House. You can do gas cards, you can do Starbucks cards, grocery cards, um, that kind of thing. So if you have things that were left over after the holiday that you want to bring in, um, feel free. There's a box on the welcome table in the back, and we just love to be able to bless them again. Let's make their jaws drop, huh? Um, and then the last announcement that I have is your communication card. We love hearing from you. If there's comments that you have, questions you have about things going on, ways that you're hoping to be involved, you want to meet with someone and find out more about the church, we would love to hear from you by you going to brookviewchurch.com and forward slash contact. And there's a little box there that you click and that'll send you to whatever sends things to us in the office. And then we respond to those throughout the week, but not Mondays, because that's our day off. I know, that's when you're like thinking about stuff and ready to rock and roll, we're not. That's our uh, Saturday? It's our Sabbath, yes, Shabbat. Shabbat, we've been watching The Chosen, so we're, you know, we got the lingo, we've got the lingo. That was one of our fun um, Christmas break activities. So, all right, I'm gonna be quiet, let's do this. Fun and exciting. Are you kidding me? Who doesn't love butterflies? You guys, Happy New Year! So we are kicking off this new series um, because a new year often brings a desire. For, is it is it really loud? Am I loud? Do you feel like I'm yelling at you? I'm pumped up. Let's go. All right. So we're starting a new series. Uh, a new year often brings a desire for new. Yes like new habits and patterns. Um, in fact, how many of you made some sort of New Year's resolution? <laughs> Got two in the lobby. This is, you. we are not a very ambitious group, you guys. <laughs> no, I just love myself the way I am. <laughs> well, this might be news to you. A lot of Americans make New Year's resolutions. <laughs> and so I, I want to give you the top six for 2023. This is according to Statista Global Consumer Survey. Okay, so here are the top six. Number six, spend less time on social media. Mm. Mm. Number five, spend more time with family and friends. 
Okay, makes sense. Less social media, more face-to-face, right? Good stuff. Number four, save more money. Okay, spend less, save more, not bad. And if all of that stuff wasn't like uber predictable, here's the, here's the really cliche stuff. Number three, lose weight. Number two, eat healthier. And drum roll for number one. Yeah, number one is exercise more. Right, it's January and uh, Kind of a time of year where we think about change a little bit. Maybe people not in our church. Um, <laughs> but I'm thinking as followers of Jesus, maybe we should, maybe we should like lean into that a little bit. Maybe we could, could think about who we are and, and who we're becoming. And so today, I want to launch this series by thinking about how important our identity is. Like, who are you? And, and what matters about you? And how valuable are you and why? Because the way that we see ourselves matters a ton. Identity is is a big deal. And today what I want to do is launch into this with a powerful image from the life of Jesus. Um, And this is Matthew chapter 3. So starting with verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Like, this is backwards. But Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. I mean, he's not going to argue with Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Now try to envision this. He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Question. Where is Jesus getting his identity from? Like from heaven, or more literally from the voice of the Spirit of God. So question, as a follower of Jesus, where do you get your identity from? Where do I get mine from? Is it, is it from heaven, like from the voice of our Father, or, or in reality, is it a bit closer to earth? I mean, for most of us, our identity is not grounded in heaven at all, but somewhere much closer to home. For example, some of us draw our identity from our performance, right? I am what I do, right? Imagine you're, you're at a cocktail party meeting strangers, which, if you're an introvert like me, is like the seventh layer of hell. Amen. Yes, amen. <laughs> Thanks, Deb. It's about as vocal as you get right there. You guys, when I envision hell, I don't think of like Dante's Inferno or some dark medieval guy needing therapy. I like envision a room full of strangers where I'm supposed to mingle. Can anyone else relate to me on this besides Deb? Yes, thank you, my people, bless you guys. And if you're, at, if you're in an environment like that, what is the number one question that usually gets asked? What do you do, right, what do you do? And it, and it can be really awkward, can feel kind of competitive. And part of what makes this so weird is that our identity gets all tied in with our performance. Our identity is entwined with what we do, how successful we are, how important we are, the titles, the achievements, all of it. And, and if you don't think that that's like true, think about over the last decade or two, how much job titles have been inflated. Oh yeah, I mean, it, there is no end to what people are doing to make themselves sound awesome. Um, I, I read an article this week by a, a blogger who wrote this. Um, He said, in corporate environments, the main purpose of a job title seems to be the inflation of your status. And most of them are not even that creative in the first place. They simply follow an old recipe. Mark your territory by adding something like district, regional, global, or international. (laughs) Add your industry into the mix, like legal or communications or transport or food and beverage, etc. 
Throw in a vague term for the work you do by adding in something like distribution, resourcing, servicing, re-engineering, and add a dash of hierarchy, chief, director, executive, manager, or supervisor, right? So following the, the recipe creates a typical title that you might find in many corporate arenas, like global food and beverage resourcing executive, or maybe district communications re-engineering supervisor. <laughs> Sounds impressive, but it doesn't mean a thing and leaves most people guessing what in the world you actually do on a daily basis. <laughs> Startups, unsurprisingly, feel the need to disrupt this outdated practice. However, most are not very successful as they create an entirely new lingo of vague and meaningless titles. Here's a list of some common ones. Chief Purpose Officer. <laughs> Chief Inspiration Officer. Sales Ninja. Brand Evangelist. Design Jedi. Happiness Hero. So it goes on to say embarrassing, isn't it? I, imagine, imagine having to explain any of these to someone at a bar. It's time we cut the crap on job titles. Stop inflating your status to impress your friends and colleagues or people on LinkedIn. Either ditch the horrendous job title altogether or come up with one that's free of any jargon and BS. Stop calling a receptionist the director of first impressions. <laughs> or a school lunch server an educational center nourishment consultant. Or a garbage collector a sanitation engineer. Or a dishwasher a gastronomical hygiene technician. So he says, if this is you, you should probably go to your LinkedIn profile and change it, like right now. <laughs> um, so for some of us, we, we draw our identity, right, from our performance. I, I am what I do. And by the way, I want you to all know that I am I'm not a pastor. I mean, pastor? Pfft. What is that? You guys know what I am? Anybody know what I am? Chief prayer warrior. <laughs> That's not bad. His holiness, no. Uh, what, what am I? You guys, I am, oh, this just rings, a cultural architect. Yes. Okay, so some of us draw, draw our identity from, uh, from that. And then number two, we, we draw our identity from like possessions. Like I am what I have. We live in a performance society for sure, but, but also a materialistic one. And the American mantra is work more, buy more, repeat. Like materialism has become a kind of religion. And it isn't just that I enjoy my stuff. It's, it's that I draw my identity from it. I am somebody because of what I have. My house, my car, my clothes, my designer purse, my shoes, my boat, my watch, my 27 pairs of Air Jordans, Kate Huguenin. <laughs> right? For, for a lot of people, things aren't just things. They're identities. For other people, their identity is rooted more in their pleasure. Like, I am what I want. Some people build their identity around pleasure. A common example of this, and I know, you know before I get in, there's, I know there's a lot of sensitivity around this. But we see this in big ways when it comes to the arena of sexuality. For some, their entire identity is constructed on their sexuality. And while, while your sexuality is very important, it's, it is a, a part of your humanity, is it the most important thing about you? Is it who you are? Is it a large enough container to hold your ache for a life of meaning? Because we all have desires, whether it's an intimate desire such as sexuality, like love, romance, connection, community, or something much lower grade, than that, like, I'm a foodie. You know, I'm a, a, a wine or an IPA connoisseur. <laughs> like, if that's you, and you, like your life goal is to find the, the world's best hummus, or couscous, or risotto, or IPA, or stout, or pinot, pin, pinot, pinot, uh, or chablis, or rosé, or cabernet sauvignon. 
or like Seattle, the Seattle area's best tiramisu or creme brulee or gelato or whatever. You know, or for other people, it's like, I travel, right? I tra- who am I? I travel. And every other Instagram post is like you somewhere. Like, here I am in Cabo. Here I am in Iceland. Here I am in Whistler. And so your thing is just travel to have, to have all these really cool experiences in these really cool places. And, and, and that's great. And, and sure, those desires are true of you. But in your core, are they the truest thing about you? Still, other people get their identity from popularity. Okay, I am what other people think of me. And in some ways, I think for, for really most of us, we never really outgrow the high school cafeteria, right? I mean, you ever walk into a room, whether it's church or a life group or a coffee shop or a bar, and feel pressure to look cooler than you actually are, like smarter or holier or more successful or like really well-read? Like, have you ever felt the pressure to project an image of yourself to the room that does not completely correspond to reality? Anybody? Everybody? I mean, this is nothing new for humanity, right? But it has been intensified by social media. Like, some people's emotional state rises and falls by how many likes they're getting online. And, and if you buy into the, like, who's cooler than who game, it's only a matter of time until social Darwinism eats you alive. Because I hate to tell you this, but there is always going to be someone cooler than you. Um, and that's certainly the case for me. There's always going to be someone better looking or more successful or more educated or somebody that has better behaved kids or whatever your thing is. If you play king of the hill, even if you win for a moment, you won't stay there very long. And so I was talking this morning with Mike and Jane. Um, one of the things we did as a family over Christmas is we went and saw the Whitney Houston movie about her life. Just unbelievably sad because here was somebody who had one of the greatest voices of a generation, if not the greatest voice of a generation, and she was cranking out music uh, that was top, top hit stuff right alongside of Michael Jackson, right? But she got into drugs and then her music took a, a downturn. She suffered with inadequacy and depression and died of an overdose that may have been, been suicide. Why? Because despite all of that success, she could not shake the feeling that she was not enough. Even if you win at King of the Hill, you won't stay there very long. So, so there are all these kinds of places where we can look to find our identity, performance, possessions, pleasure, popularity, and right, that is by no means an exhaustive list. But there's a danger here because when you think about it, your identity is tied to several things. It's tied to your self-worth, right? It's like, this is why I matter. It's like, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a manager, I'm a mother. It's also tied to your security. I, I, I'm safe because I belong. We, we all, we all want to have a tribe, a little community that we gravitate to because we want security. We want to know that we have a place to belong. And there's a community around just about anything, hunting and fishing or around food and IPA or being a mommy or being woke or, or around our sexuality or our socioeconomic status or our education level. We all want to find our people where we know that we belong. And then, of course, your identity is tied to, third thing is just your happiness, you feel happy based on how good you feel about your identity. And this is why there's so much danger, and we all know this, but any of those identities can be taken away, and in fact, some of those identities will surely be taken away. It's only a matter of time with age, right? And then, who are you? If you get your identity from your performance, I am what I do, what happens one day when you're not able to perform at the same level? Who are you without your role, your, your job title, your, your, all, of your, all of your position? Who are you if you're not as successful anymore? If you get your identity from your possessions, what happens if you lose them? What happens if you lose your, you know, fill in the blank? Like, who are you without your fishing boat? Nobody. 
right? Who are you without your designer purse or your house or your car? And if you get your identity from your popularity, what happens if you gain weight or you get older or you lose your hair? Or what happens when your really cool thing isn't cool anymore? Because I don't know if you've noticed, the world changes and the rules change and what's cool changes. My point is that all these identities are, in the words of Jesus, sinking sand. And this is, Glenda, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> My gosh. And if anyone doesn't know, that is Giovanna's mom, and the apple does not fall far from the tree. In the words of Jesus, all those identities are sinking sand. And this is why Jesus invites us to build our life on solid rock. To, to begin drawing our identity more and more from heaven and less and less from earth. Now, you guys are like thinking adults. And so I, I wonder if, if some of you are thinking, okay. Like I get that Jesus had his moment in the Jordan River. But he's Jesus. I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know about you guys. I would love something like that. Like if one day I came up out of the bathtub. Yeah, actually, I'm a shower guy. Thanks. Yes, thanks. I know you guys were getting concerned. I, 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 I actually don't take baths, but... Okay, so how cool would it be if tomorrow morning I'm in the shower and a dove passes through the wall and hovers over me and then the majestic voice of the Father comes and says, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Would that be amazing or creepy? <laughs> but, but this story about the dove and the voice from heaven in the, in the Jordan, I, we're tempted to say, well, that's, that's, that's about Jesus, not, not me, Right? Is it? I, I mean, the New Testament writers insist that when we, when we put our faith in Christ, we have a new identity, a brand new identity. That because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we now stand before God as his beloved children. I want to I read to you a little bit from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, Paul was writing to a, a group of followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, and he was trying to help them see who they are in Christ. And I'm going to read to you the first 14 verses of Ephesians. And just, just notice all that Paul insists we are now in Christ. Now, this is going to take a minute. So take a deep breath. Relax. Try to absorb this as I, as I read this over you. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to his plan, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
You guys, I'm just I'm going to cut it off there because, like, at some point i got to stop. <laughs> but how good is that? I mean, just so you know, in Greek, that is one huge, long, run-on sentence. Like, it's like Paul is so fired up, the dude just can't get it all out. Now, there's a lot in there, and we don't have time to, nearly enough time to, like, run through all of it in depth. Here's what I want you to notice. The key phrase in chapter 1 is in Christ. Paul uses it all through chapter 1. He uses it all through the rest of the letter. In fact, he uses it all through many of his letters. It is by far his favorite way of framing our truest identity. Um, in the world of theology, the, the, this concept is called incorporation, okay? Or it goes also by the name of union. You don't need to remember that. But the basic idea is that in baptism, so think of Matthew 28, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, meaning when you are baptized into the Father and the Son and the Spirit, when you are drenched in the reality of God, or put another way, when you become a follower of Jesus, in that moment, you are incorporated into union with Christ. In other words, and, and I, I think this is stunning, it means from that moment on, everything that is true about Christ is now true about you. Theologian N.T. Wright explains it like this. He says, when Paul speaks to us as being in Christ, the center of what he means is that the king represents his people so that what happens to him happens to them, and what is true of him is true of them. Think of David fighting Goliath. David was representing Israel. He had already been anointed as king, and it wasn't long after his victory before people realized that he was the one who would lead Israel into God's future. So with us, Jesus has won the decisive victory over the oldest and darkest enemy of all, and if we are in him, in the king, in Christ, we shall discover step by step what that means. You guys, I think that's a, such a great metaphor to help us understand this idea, the David and Goliath. Uh, many of you know the story. Israel was facing their, their longtime nemesis, the Philistines, and the Philistines proposed an idea. They're like, hey, rather than sending all these men to war on both sides, what if we each sent a representative to fight to the death? And it'll be like a winner-take-all deal. Like, if, if, if your guy wins, we'll just leave you alone and, and, and go home, and then you can live in peace and freedom. But if our guy wins, then we take everything. And so David goes out onto the battlefield little teenage David, to fight Goliath. And in that moment, David represented all of Israel. And because of that, his personal victory was all of Israel's victory. David's freedom became all of Israel's freedom. His kingdom became the, became the kingdom of all Israel. Everybody now had access to David's victory and his freedom and his kingdom. And in the same way, through Jesus, the ultimate king, the one in whom David was just a, a shadow, a type, through his victory, and that's what the cross and the resurrection were, nothing short of the defeat of hell itself, through that battle, his victory has become our victory. His freedom has become our freedom, and we now have full access to the kingdom. Swiss theologian Karl Barth explained it this way. He said, Christians are now quite quite briefly described as those in Christ Jesus, or usually even more simply as in Christ. They're described in this way because they are in him. And they are in him because Christ has adopted them into unity with his being, which means that in virtue of their baptism, they have put him on like a covering garment. As they are in Christ, they acquire and have direct share in what God first and supremely is in him, what was done by God for the world and therefore them in him and what was assigned and given to them by God in him. Now some of you are like, yeah, so that's why I don't read theology. <laughs> and you tuned out about four words into that. Okay, so he's, he, he's simply saying that because of what Jesus has done, 
Everything that is true about Christ is now true about you. And this has all kinds of implications for your identity. Uh, Think again about the statements Paul makes in just that one opening run-on sentence. I mean, look at all that Paul insists is true of those who are in Christ. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing, verse 3. Chosen before the creation of the world, holy, blameless, verse 4. Loved, predestined, adopted as sons and daughters, verse 5. To the praise of his glorious grace, verse 6. Redeemed, forgiven, and rich in God's grace, verse 7. Wise in understanding, verse 8. Did you know that you're wise in understanding? Aware of the mystery of Christ, verse 9. You're chosen and predestined, verse 11. For the praise of his glory, 12. You're included, you're not left out. You are saved, verse 13. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit and you are God's possession, verse 14. Now that's just in the opening run-on sentence. I mean, he just goes off like this, you guys, for three full chapters. He's like, you are God's poetry, He has good works waiting for you ahead. You're a part of a whole new humanity. You have been made alive in Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness. I mean, he just goes off for line after line after line, insisting this is who you are in Christ. Okay, but you guys are smart people. And and you think through things deeply, and and there's, there's reality to consider. And you're really realistic. And so I'm guessing that more than a few of you are thinking, "Um, no, I'm not. I'm actually sitting here exhausted this morning because I was up most of the night last night looking at porn. I'm not holy. I got all kinds of addictions, shopping, gambling, substances, eating. I feel like I have no self-control. I'm a wreck. I'm fighting anger, fear, anxiety, depression. I'm not holy or blessed or chosen or predestined. I'm not even sure what I think about all of this yet. So how is any of this true of me? Well, this is who you are in Christ, Okay, remember, incorporation, union. Everything that's true about Christ is now true about you. Christ is holy, so guess what? You're holy. Christ is blameless, so guess what? You're blameless if and when you are in Christ. And here's the kicker for all of this. This isn't just true theologically. It's becoming true of you in reality. Like if you've been around uh, Brookview for a while, Many of you have heard me talk about the mystery of, of the now and the not yet. Sometimes Jesus would talk about the kingdom of God as if it's now, as if it's here, as if it's present. And then other times he would talk about the kingdom as if it's a future reality. It's something that's coming one day. It's, it's not yet. So according to Jesus, which is it? It's both. It's here in part but it's not yet here in full. So you can take that same principle and you can apply it to you. You are in the process of becoming who you really are in Christ. Therefore, not only is your identity rooted in Christ, it's rooted in the future. I mean, for most of us, first off, our identity is is not rooted in Christ. It's just not. It's not rooted in heaven at all. It's, it's rooted in earth, you know, in our performance or possessions or pleasures or popularity, what, whatever your thing is. And even if it is rooted in Christ to some degree, it's usually rooted in the past, who we were, or the present, who we are. It's not rooted in the future, who we're becoming. So, so you, you ask me, like, you're like, well, Jason, who are you? Who are you? Odds are, I'll come up with an identity from my past rooted in the earth. Something like, well, I was a kid that was a product of two divorces, and eventually I was raised by a single mom who suffered from bipolar disorder. I was insecure, afraid, and I didn't know who I was. I found some success with sports, and so that became my identity. And then as I grew in my teenage years, I found a tribe with drinkers and the promiscuous. 
I did a ton of things that I regret and I hurt a bunch of people along the way. But I lived with insane levels of insecurity which grew into anxiety and depression and I even flirted with suicide in my high school years. That's all true of me. But see, that's not who I am. That's identity from the past. So I could give you the version from the present. I could say, well, who am I? I love my wife and kids. At least kind of. <laughs> I mean, honestly. <laughs> well, sometimes I do things that hurt them. I do. And I'm a pastor, and I'm trying to teach people the way of Jesus. But I fall short myself every day. I struggle with fear and anger and bitterness. I can judge people way too quick. I can put people in boxes. I can be really selfish, and I still don't have as much self-control as I need to get on the other side of some pretty destructive ways of thinking and behaving. Now, I am way better than I used to be, but there are still days that I go to bed, and I'm just like, man, I blew it. Notice what that is. That is an identity rooted in my present. And that, too, is actually true of me. It's true. But is it the truest thing about me? What if my identity was rooted in Christ, and not in the past, who I was, or in the present, who I am, but in the future, who I'm becoming? Well, Jason, who are you? I'm a son of the Father. I've been raised from the dead and made fully alive at both a physical and soul level. I am filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. I have complete self-control. I'm 100% comfortable in my own skin and free to enjoy and celebrate the gifts and strengths of every person I encounter. In becoming like Christ, I'm more my true self than I have ever been. I feel at peace and free and loved, and I know that I belong, and I know that I will forever. Okay, now by timeline, that's not actually who I am yet. But that is who I am becoming in Christ. And that's who you are too in your own way, shape, or form. That's who you are becoming in Christ. Now please don't misunderstand. My, my point here is not to like shrug off sin or to like wink at it like, oh, it's no big deal. Okay, not at all. Sin, sin will, will warp your identity, it will damage you, and it will damage people around you. So I'm not saying that we should ignore the problem of sin or take it lightly. What I am saying is that in Christ, your identity is, isn't rooted in your past or even in your present. It's rooted in your future. The, the call of God is to begin living into who you already are. I want to jump to Ephesians 4. So for the first three chapters, Paul just goes off on our identity in Christ. And, 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 and then in the first three chapters, there's not a single command. He doesn't say, so go do this. It's just like, this is who you are. I mean, think about that. For the first three chapters, there's not a single command. Paul wants us to be grounded in who we are. And once that foundation is laid, Paul then talks about what we do. And notice that for Paul, what we do flows out of who we are. So in chapter 4, starting with verse 1, Paul changes course and he writes this. After all of this, this is who you are. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, in light of all I just wrote about your identity, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then it's just a string of commands. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And it just goes on and on and on with command. So the second three chapters of the book are just command after command. And what is the first command? He says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's saying, this is who you are. Now, go be who you are. This is who you are becoming in Christ. Now go live into it. And I think, I think it's, it's kind of easy to misunderstand Paul here. To make this actually, instead of something that is 
joyous and freeing to make it a heavy like weight or burden that we bear. Right? Like live a life worthy of the calling. <laughs> so I want to give you an analogy. Um, I think of the final scene from the movie Saving Private Ryan. How many of you have seen Saving Private Ryan? One of my, it's on my list of all-time faves. It's actually my 15-year-old daughter Brooklyn's favorite movie of all time. So Matt Ryan is, uh, or Private Ryan is played by Matt Damon. And the story is that, that one of four brothers, that, Matt Damon's like one of four brothers that are all serving in World War II. And um, his three brothers are all killed. And so the military decides to pull him out to allow his mother to have one son who survives the war. And by the way, it's based on a real story. Different names, of course. But the movie is the story of the unit that's sent in to pull out one soldier that's fighting. And there's, of course, all kinds of conversation among these guys about how this whole project makes no sense. Why, why should they all risk their lives to pull one guy out of action? So, <clears throat> spoiler alert, but you've had 24 years. <laughs> uh, many, of them, many of them die, including Captain Miller, okay, the unit leader that's portrayed by Tom Hanks. But they do, in fact, get Private Ryan out. And yet, the, the final scene is, is, is this really, I, for me, it was really, like really unexpected, and it was really haunting. You, you have this gritty war film that then jumps several years ahead, um, and, and Matt Damon, okay, Private Ryan, is now decades in the future, and he's like maybe a 70-something World War II vet. And he's at the military cemetery, and he's standing in front of Captain Miller's grave. So there's the white crosses everywhere. And as he stares at the cross marking Captain Miller, he says to the deceased Captain Miller, I hope I've earned everything you've done for me. And then his wife and his family come up, and he looks at his wife, and in te it, with tears in his eyes, he says, Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Now, you guys, this is not what I was expect expecting in this movie. It, to me, it feels like kind of a haunting ending, to be honest, because it's, it's not really a happy ending. It's kind of, like, it kind of is, right? Like, he's alive, but all sorts of people had to die to keep him alive, and now he's living with this crippling weight of expectation. Did I earn it? Did I measure up? Was I good enough? You know, I, I just don't think that's at all what Paul means here when he says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I don't think he's saying, so now, now that this is who you are and now that Jesus has done all this for you, now go out and earn it. Jesus died for you, so you, you better live up to his sacrifice. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think what he's saying is, you guys, just listen. I think he's saying, you have a beautiful calling from God. So don't waste your life on anything less. By way of analogy, I, I think of a, a really big day in, in my life. I'm going to share with you guys a really old picture. So this is June 27th, 1997. It is the night of my wedding rehearsal. Uh, the next day, these two extremely young, naive people got married. <laughs> I was 24, Jen was 21, and we were convinced that we were mature. <laughs> okay, so less than 24 hours after this picture, I became a husband. So in the moment when Pastor Bob pronounced us husband and, and, and wife, question for you guys. How good do you think I was at being a husband? Yeah, thank you. You guys are very sensitive and thoughtful. Your filters are in full effect. That was really good because I set that up for you. But uh, let me tell you how good I was. Not good at all. I'm like, I had so much to learn. 
And I have learned, I've learned a lot, and yet I have so much more to continue to learn. But in that moment, on that day, okay, the day after this, less than 24 hours after this, I became a husband. And since that day, I have not become more or less of a husband. I can be a good one or a bad one, but my status is the same. I am a husband to my wife. And I have spent 25 years, and I will spend the rest of my life, you guys, just learning how to be who I already am. Learning how to live up to the calling that I have received. And this is what Paul is saying about who you are. This is a whole other way of thinking about your identity, where it isn't built on the sinking sands of performance or what you have or what other people think of you, but it's built on who you are becoming in Christ. It isn't rooted in your past, who you were, or your present, even who you are, but in your future, who you are becoming. And when you see you as God sees you, that identity frees you to live into the reality of who you already are. Um, David Benner writes, Christians affirm a foundation of identity that is absolutely unique in the marketplace of spiritualities. Whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. Love is our identity. Neither knowing God nor knowing self can progress very far unless it begins with the knowledge of how deeply we are loved by God. In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis for our identity. Our identity is who we experience ourselves to be, the I that each of us carries within. And an identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. So when you think of yourself, the I that you carry within, is it, I, I am a son, I am a daughter, I am deeply loved by God. Maybe you're thinking, okay, but I'm a mess. Okay, I got issues. That's true. But think about how the Father does what he does in us. The Father loves us into our future. This is what any good parent does. Some of you, you've had really good parents, right? Because despite your flaws and your failures and your obvious immaturity, they, they could see in you who you could become. And so they, they spoke prophetic-like words over you that just kept calling that out, right? Like, you are strong. You are kind. You are smart. You weren't always but they could see a future you and they cultivated it. Some of you, you didn't have parents like that and, and if that's you, I'm, I am so sorry, but this is why you need to hear the voice of your heavenly father. He sees a breathtaking future version of you and he will not stop cultivating it in you until it becomes reality. I think of the beautiful words of Paul to the Christ followers in Philippi. I mean, just this is Paul to everybody he's writing to all the time. Here's, now he's writing to a whole new group of people in Philippi. And he writes to them, the, the letter begins with, I, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is committed to seeing this thing through with you. God will never give up on you. So don't you give up on you. You guys, this morning we're going to take communion and just remember Jesus' sacrifice. Right, The juice represents his blood shed for us and the bread his body broken for us. And what is this? It is a symbol. It is a symbol of our union with Christ, that we have, that we have been incorporated in Christ. That what's true of Christ is now true of you and me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, 
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to worship. We are going to light this place up. And you can come up at any time. Um, there's also juice and, and bread in the back. There's even a gluten-free option, I believe. Um, but I would also encourage you to take a moment. If you're, if you're able to come up to the front, I would encourage you to take a moment and think about what Christ has done and who you are in him. And be thankful. Take a moment and just pour out gratitude. And if you're not able to do that, that's totally fine. Are you just really nervous about it? You're like, nope, that's totally okay. <laughs> totally okay. Jesus loves you anyway. Father in heaven, we are living in a place where your kingdom is now and it is not yet. And we are so aware of all the aspects of it that are not yet. But that doesn't change the reality that it's also a now thing. And so I pray that you would make us aware of your presence. I pray that you would make us aware of your Holy Spirit working in us and working in our world, working in, the, in our relationships with one another as your body. And I pray this morning for anybody who is just wrestling with feeling defeated Somebody who's saying, I just don't have any, I just don't have any self-control or I just don't have any willpower or I feel like I love God one moment and the next I feel different. God, that's all part of the process. It is all part of the process. And so would you just continue to persistently cultivate in us everything that you want us to be? God, would you would you refuse to give up on us as you do? And as we, as we see that, would you help us to realize there's always hope, there's always healing available if we continually put ourselves in your hands. And so God, meet us in this place. Amen. Mm-hmm.